It's Nick here, and you're listening to TFUV 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the traditional territories of the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Husanich people. Welcome to episode number four, season nine. My name is Matilda Cervantes, and today I'm going to be your host. And today we're going to have a wonderful guest again. His name is Thomas Mallet, and he was awarded recently with his Master's of Sociology from the University of Victoria. As a sociologist, he explores the role that emotion and gesture plays during human interactions in the creation of meaning and how the sharing of these phenomena can encourage healthy aging. Recently, he has been accepted to the medical school and he's thinking about practicing as a general practitioner or specializing in geriatrics in rural British Columbia. I'm so proud of my friend and I'm so proud to have you here, Thomas. Uh, thank you so much for accepting this invitation. I know you're still being involved in research because Thomas is actually a research assistant in the KISAT research team at the University of Victoria. Uh, the KISAT stands for Knowledge Implementation for Scale-Up, Spread, and Sustainability of Assistive Technology. And this is a very important topic because, as we know, uh, COVID-19 has had a significant impact on the psychosocial well-being of older adults in Canada. Older adults living with frailty or disabilities are some of the most vulnerable to COVID-19. As issues around support are further exacerbated, communication assistive technologies, for example, CanConnect, which is um, a tablet-based communication assistive technology that has been uh, created here at the University of Victoria in Kansist. Um, this this device is an example of how we can contribute to solutions to mitigate or prevent the differential risk to COVID-19 in vulnerable older adults with challenges. Uh, for example, frailty, disability, cognitive decline. Um, using a collaborative action research approach, uh, this, this research team has implemented and deployed 10 CanConnect devices addressed to address anxiety and fear were part of the emotional impacts of the pandemic and the related public health restrictions, but also resiliency and openness to use new technologies has arose. But also with that, it comes um, some type of challenges and the stigma and discrimination and the confidence, autonomy, digital literacy, comfortability of using assistive technology can be enhanced or can be an issue. So we're going to explore these type of conversations with my friend and my colleague Thomas. We actually collaborate in this project together at the KISAT team, and we are very, very uh, proud to be part of that important team along with um, Simon Carroll, Denise Cloutier, and Gore Miller, and recently our main supervisor and, well, my main supervisor and also the principal investigator for he, for this project. Uh, she passed away. Uh, her name is Dr. Karen Kobayashi. And I just want to offer also um, in her memory, I want to dedicate this podcast to her uh, with all our love and with the good memories and 
the great legacy that she um, left behind uh, because she will be remembered for many uh, by many people and yeah so just wanted to um, put that here uh, for everyone who is listening uh, and yeah because well Thomas you know as you know we have been touched in so many ways um, by Karen she has been not only a principal investigator for this project but also a mentor a friend and well, a supervisor to my doctoral studies here at Juvik. And yeah, so let's start with this conversation because also um, I want you all to know that my friend Thomas, um, his thesis is around, it's around the topic of the microsociology of violence. It's going to be a very eclectic conversation. We're going to talk about the violence and the microsociologies of violence, but we are also going to talk about healthy aging and assistive technology. Welcome to this journey. Enjoy episode number four, season nine. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Maddie. How's it going? It's going perfect. Like, I have been... So busy, but so happy. What about you? Yeah, no, I'm good. Uh, working with you on the project and... Uh... I'm pretty excited. And of course, I know who you are. Like, we work together in this amazing project. But I'm wondering if you would like to self-introduce for others that are listening. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, my name is Thomas Millette. Uh I am 31 years old, uh, university graduate. I did my, well, half of my bachelor's degree here at UVic. Uh, in sociology, and then the other two years previous uh, at other colleges in Vancouver. Took a big uh, break in between my undergraduate before finishing to go to Germany um, for four years, uh, and then came back and finished my undergrad in sociology, uh, upon which I had no idea what I, <laughs> what I wanted to do uh, after my undergrad. So uh, I had the opportunity to apply uh, for a master's degree uh, in sociology, and uh, I kind of limped into that program and was accepted. So I was really grateful for that, uh, where I just continue my, my study of sociology, uh, but really started to branch out into, into other interests uh, that were definitely more philosophical and, and psychological in nature um, to kind of get to the bottom of, of, you know, really what I was experiencing uh, sociologically, but also uh, personally, intellectually, spiritually, uh, and how to uh, understand the world uh, so, yeah, I, I really diversified my interests in, in graduate school, and uh, it was quite a good experience, for sure. Pretty ambitious. Uh, I don't know, you know, like, I was reading the other day about people who are overly ambitious, and I find that I definitely want to do a lot in life, but I don't have any specific goals uh, wh where I'm willing to crush people on the way <laughs> to the way to those goals, so... Uh, I'd say I'm ambitious, but also open to just living a simple life uh, and having what I have. So mm, that's that's very nice to hear, especially in the academia where things can be very competitive sometimes. Um, sometimes there can be also very collaborative, especially when you're working in interdisciplinary teams, which I think is the case for the project that you are involved right now. And maybe you could uh, tell us what's the current project you are working on. Yeah, so first first of all, I agree that the academic environment is definitely competitive, but then there's also that, that teamwork element. Uh, 
in graduate school more competitive, I think, and then, yeah, joining with the project, uh, with the KISAP project, with yourself uh, and, and others um, has been an amazing kind of transition from graduate school into, uh, you know, kind of more formal academic work, doing research uh, in the field, but then also learning um, the other elements of, of writing and publishing uh, as well. Um, so I don't know exactly what you want me to talk about specifically with that project because of really the complexity of it. I think it's probably most important to say that uh, it was Dr. Karen Kobayashi who recently passed away, who uh, I met in graduate school, who was just an amazing, uh, amazing leader and amazing um, teacher, uh, really, who, who hired me right out of grad school. Uh, and uh, for this big, big research project, uh, working with seniors uh, and helping them figure out why uh, technologies or assistive technologies in particular um, aren't adopted uh, by our senior populations and, uh, and also by uh, caregivers as well who, who, who help seniors, whether they're formal or informal caregivers. So informal meaning family members, formal meaning uh, maybe um, appointed by the provincial health authorities or something like that. Um, so I kind of went from, you know, graduate school where my understanding and focus and interests were in really the microsociology of violence. Uh, and so to keep it the theme of the podcast, non-jargon, which basically means, uh, you know, what is it like to be engaged in violence with another human being and, and how we, you know, interpret that kind of reality and how we interpret gesture and how we uh, go through that experience and how it changes uh changes us and the meaning we derive from from both a non-consensual violence but also consensual violence uh, and so taking that experience uh, from graduate school and going into the field of aging was you know seems like something that they don't actually you know correspond with one another but it was pretty early on into the research projects and in particular working with you and doing the interviews and working with seniors that that focus in graduate school on, on violence uh, and, and understanding gesture and the importance of, you know, matching and mirroring gesture in order to establish trust in conversation and, and these sorts of things really translated into, into conversations and interviews uh, and training sessions uh, with seniors in technology. Uh, and, and so there was a, an interesting transition uh, between those two worlds that, that actually melded really well. Um, so... Do, do you find any like similarities? Because I have been thinking about that, the, 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 how different these two worlds are, the microsociology of violence and seniors and uh, technology and assistive technology. And wh where do you find those common themes or maybe similarities in terms of maybe psychology or you already mentioned it, the gestures and the way we re build relationships and trust. Are there any other similarities that you find that have been helpful also to work in this project with seniors specifically? I think like there's kind of two ways I'd approach that question. One is a more in a more abstract sense. So as in a simple language as possible, uh, one of the well the primary thesis that that uh, an argument that I made in my master's research was that people engage in consensual violence, uh, for example, combat sparring, so, you know, MMA sparring, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai boxing, uh, they engage in this consensual violence uh, as a means of um, dealing with death and death anxiety. And I think that ultimately what I tried to argue was that this simulation of the death process with other human beings uh, brings human beings closer together. It helps them understand the nature of themselves. Um, the certainties and uncertainties of life 
and how human beings can help one another in their most vulnerable states. The sharing of power, for example, that exists between somebody who's obviously stronger and more wise and has more experience with somebody who's not. Uh, and then this kind of transition of power between human beings uh, uh, to really liberate one another from the suffering of life. So that was kind of a, what I determined was the reason people have been since the beginning of time engaging in, in consensual violence across civilizations. Uh, and really trying to get at the, the nature of this primary, what I think was a primary social uh, dynamic that existed far before any sort of organized religion, uh, I believe, anyway. And I really thought that that abstract understanding of, of what sparring was transformed over to uh, a, an age cohort of people who really are closer to death than the rest of us. Uh, and they've had a lot of time to think about their life and the meaning of life and and and. Are, are probably more, uh, what's the word, they face more anxiety or face more thoughts uh, about death than, than the rest of us who are younger. And so there was, I think, a connection on that level um, between what's associated with aging and, and, and being closer to the certainty that we all face as human beings, which is dying, uh, usually as a result of being uh, getting, getting older, um, not always. Um, and so I want to make sure to distinguish that because I don't want to associate aging just with dying because that's not what aging is is about um but i think that that was a connection there um that on a kind of psychosocial and more abstract level um there was an understanding there uh you know as a young fighter or a young sparrer fighting somebody who with that experience that knowledge um you know there's a patience involved there's a there's an understanding there's an appreciation for what the person uh who's gone through the suffering and put the time in uh of life uh, in a fighting circumstance can easily be transferred over to somebody, uh, to a senior, uh, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I can see some um, universal themes that you find in, and I love how you go to that psychosocial component in human beings. And it's pretty complex, but certainly uh, you can find it across many uh, scenarios and, and ages, like in, in different development stages of human um, so it's great. And I can see also you are very multifacetic, like how you're working. I'm, I'm thinking about the title for this podcast, and maybe it can be something like from violence and microsociology to sociology of aging and medical, or I don't know, something like that. Mm. What title would you think it's going to be a good title for this podcast in terms of jumping from these two very apparently two very different topics, but at the same time they have some common understanding and some breaches between um but my approach to kind of life and experience is is slowly unfolded in that there's not a lot of difference uh between things that we do and find meaning in even in our own various contexts if we if we dig deeply enough in the thing that we're looking at uh we start to find almost the same underlying structure and patterns uh of interacting with things in, a, in com what seemed like completely different contexts. And so, you know, I've found that it's a very artistic process. Uh, and my life is a very artistic process. A friend asked me the other day, how would you characterize what you are? And, you know, I have a lot of degrees, sociology and, you know, now going into medicine, I think after, uh, after this, and uh but art and on and on being an artist i would say like characterizes my approach to to life and my approach to research it's uh which is ironic because of the 
systematic and scientific expectations usually associated with method and collecting data and uh, and and writing up methods and writing up your results. Uh, but I find that there's a uh, highly artistic uh, element to to this. Well, that that's like a gift, I will say, for the academic world because you sometimes it's hard to find those right combinations between science, art. And, and psychology, and you seem to have all of those and integrate the, all those components, and that makes you a gift for the academia. So I'm glad you're here in this podcast today with us. <laughs> and I can see you smiling, which is great, because I would like to ask now, for people who is listening, maybe they are wondering, what, what is sociology and what is microsociology? And uh, also, if you can share with us the term of gerund technology and all of those kind of concepts that can be very like, what, like what, it, what that means. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, I think like the broader understanding of what sociology is, uh, when you'd see it in a sociology 100 class, uh, the definition is, is the study of, you know, human social organizations, human groups operating with one another to create, uh, you know, some sense of stability through the sharing of values, the sharing of, you know, the creation of institutions, either abstract institutions, so ideas that we all find fundamentally sacred that help structure and organize how we behave with one another in the world, but then also physical institutions like, a, you know, a, a, um, what's it called? where the judges, the courts, or, uh, you know... Like legal Yeah, like your government institutions, right? So these are ha actual physical representations of, you know, sociology and, uh, and what we're looking at, I think, as sociologists. Uh, and that's kind of a more basic definition of sociology. But since, you know, my education and previous education, that has really changed uh, to look at a lot more of the psychological and psychosocial elements of, of, of human behavior uh, and aren't... Uh, how would we say, uh, have gone from kind of traditional approaches, looking at institutions uh, and social stability and, and, and how we create that social stability through these shared beliefs and values and behaviors into uh, more theoretical understandings. So I have a question. Can we have then sociology without institutions? Like, can we talk about sociology with a group of human beings without institutions and just because they are a group of like uh, humans? Yeah, so I think that... Forming groups, I guess? Good question. I think that our understanding of what an institution is, is is, you know, relatively contextual to our own history and how we understand human organization. But for me personally, I believe that it doesn't matter what name you give institution uh, or if you want to use the word institution, but there's some semblance, even in, you know, I mean, we don't have any... When you don't have recorded history, you don't have recorded history, but our imaginations allow us to imagine previous societies that didn't really have connections with other worlds, but they would have had some sort of social organization amongst human beings mm. in order to maintain some semblance of order. Uh, and I think that, you know, institution, uh, you know, it's just a word that we use these days to describe what what are the fundamental beliefs and values that uh, form the the structure of our morality and, and, and our ways of being and knowing. Oof, morality, that's another topic. But before going to that, um, so what happened when we talk about microsociology? That means right. uh, like what it is. Right, so so microsociology, so I talked about sociology and that really kind of implied a more 
what would be called a macro definition, looking at the larger social forces, for example, those greater institutions and ideas that exist in and among society in large groups of people, but also between countries uh, and larger organizations maybe around the world. Microsociology is focused on really very small situational contextual engagements between human beings. Um, so most specifically, what, what you and I are doing right now, a microsociology would look at this example uh, of two human beings interacting with one another, creating shared meanings through gesture. You know, why are you nodding your head to when I'm speaking? Well, there's a fundamental understanding to the language I'm using that you are, you know, attributing meaning to. Otherwise, you wouldn't be nodding your head. So a microsociologist is always looking at the contextual phenomenon as it's happening, so the, 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 the experience as it's happening. Uh, some might say it takes a more empirical sense to sociology. They're looking directly at what they're seeing and trying to figure out why human beings are behaving in a more in a smaller kind of real-world example. Yeah, I can see how or why you like psychology, right? Because microsociology is kind of like that bridge to psychology in terms of that individual interaction. And I know there is so much more, but I can see that part um, as well. And so I, we have two pieces here now, or more than two, and I will put some music later, like ding, 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 when I say, like, we have sociology. We have uh, microsociology. And then we have um, assistive technology, and we have seniors. How do you combine those three or those four And what is uh, the things you're doing and the things you are finding in the current research you're working on? Right. So the, la the latter, so the last few things you said uh, regarding assistive technology and seniors, we should attribute to within the definition of gerund technology, which is what you asked me to define after sociology and microsociology. Uh, and really it's the, you know, the study of kind of our older demographic and aging populations Uh, and, and, and basically the, you know, social determinants of their health and healthy aging, uh, I would say, occupies the definition of gerund technology, or at least one perspective of it. And the way I would uh, say that macro and micro sociology uh, impact that is, in a more macro sense, we look at the ways that laws, um, government policies, even uh, health authorities and the way that their systems are structured uh, affect the aging of individuals and groups of seniors uh, in their lives. So that would be kind of how I would incorporate a more macro or larger scale sociology into gerund technologies, looking at those greater social forces impact uh, the individual lives of, uh, of human beings, but also like the, the, the lives of seniors in general as a, as a larger demographic. Um, you know, for example, new policies uh, set by the government uh, to... Uh, give more money or take more money away from seniors' pensions has a dramatic impact on, you know, all those seniors, but then it has an even uh, a more unique impact on the individual lives. You can see that relationship between the top macro uh, sociology and the bottom, uh, and that relationship between gerund technology and gerontology. And then in a micro-sociological sense, uh, you get to see how those impacts, and re you really get to expand that those actual examples of, of seniors interacting maybe with themselves, their caregivers or the health or, or the health authorities uh, in their homes or in their specific context. And you get to see how they ascribe meaning 
um, to the various policies that trickle down and inform and how they're supposed to behave or what resources that they have. And so you get to actually see the complexity of unique, uh, you know, the unique relationships formed by individuals. So um, I'm not sure if that kind of captures the integration of those concepts into gerund technology. Yeah, and I I know, um, and maybe we all know at this point, and if you don't know, please do some research if you're listening to this and you're more interested in, in finding out. But um, in terms of the transition and demographic transition that we are on right now, mm. um, we are getting more seniors in our communities. And uh, I know many policies are looking for seniors to age in place, be more independent and keep that um, independency and, and help them with mobility and other other strategies that can, can help them to be um, in community and maybe not in a long-term uh, facility, uh, which for me, coming from Mexico, was kind of interesting to see how seniors are being, like what, what's the future of seniors here, apparently, mm-hmm. uh, because in Mexico we are so family oriented mm. that we take for granted that grandma is going to stay there with us and our grandparents are going to stay with children at home. Uh, but here it was a different story. It is a different story. But at the same time, I can see some policymakers and other organizations looking towards changing that to do it more community, as we are doing it in Mexico. I don't know if, if you know what I'm saying here and if you can mention something in relation to this as well. Yeah, that, uh, well, first of all, that's something that when you and I have been doing interviews together, we've seen uh, come up from um, particularly those participants that are maybe either not born in Canada or they're born in Canada but have, you know, their second generation, uh, I guess immigrants would be the term, or mm-hmm. their parents we're not from Canada, but they're from Canada. So they still have that community feel within the household. You'll have a, a family uh, married with kids, and then you also have the grandparents who will, who will stay there until, uh, you know, they either pass away or, you know, the last, maybe the last moments of life. But I think that they'd probably stay within the house. So that's something that uh, in the interviews was something that became very, uh, like, more obvious to me, not something that I'd really thought about. Uh, as a solution, uh, maybe to the increasing kind of uh, demographic shifts uh, of of seniors that we're seeing. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, to do so, I mean, it requires, must require some, you know, massive shift in, in social consciousness, right? Because if it's, it's not something that at least like even my family is on their radar, right? Like as, as soon as my parents get old, I think the last thing my brothers and sisters are thinking is I can't, let's get move mom and dad into the house. Like they're thinking the opposite, which for me doing this research has now become like, well, why the hell not? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's also a cultural and maybe, yeah, a generational cultural thing. Uh, but then the, the piece of assistive technology is playing an important role in helping seniors to be more independent. Um, I know the term of assistive technology is so broad and everyone maybe can say like, what's assistive technology? What are some examples of those? Um, Can you maybe elaborate on that, please? Yeah, so, I mean, what 
there's different definitions for assistive technologies within the field of uh, gerontology and gerontechnology. Um, and for our team, we define assistive technologies as, a, as you mentioned, a very broad kind of umbrella term that captures really any technology that helps uh, somebody um, who's in the senior category of uh, what we define as 55 and over, but you know maybe even older, uh, live at home uh, as safely and independently for as long as possible, uh, which is that definition is definitely tied to public health authority uh, assumptions that that's actually a better for them, by the way. So that's important to, to, to point out that distinction that our, that our definition is also tied to what is assumed in public health that it's better for them to live at home uh, uh, for as long as possible than to go into long-term care. So basically what covers those technologies can be anything from, uh, you know, mobility aids like walkers, uh, wheelchairs, maybe stair lifts, those automatic that go up and down the staircases, uh, you know, as well as any kind of medical devices that are given to help uh, with mobility uh, at the home. Um, but also, um, you know, sensory technologies, so things like hearing aids, uh, or, um, you know, uh, speech readers or screen readers to so these are things that will help you know somebody who has tough uh, visual uh, challenges to to basically blow up their what they're reading to to help them read books otherwise they couldn't see the print um, to also things like uh, communication technologies and modern uh, technologies and softwares that uh, maybe are useful for just improving uh, social connectedness and reducing social isolation so things like FaceTime uh, or Skype or even the new technology that we've been implementing as a team, CanConnect, uh, which is uh, a technology designed uh, by the company Canasys that operates out of UVic. Uh, and then, you know, also other technologies uh, that could be used for people with uh, cognitive challenges. So these could be even like GPS trackers uh, to help people who are wandering so they can wander safely uh, to some degree before you might have to go and, and, and help them. So it's really a broad scale. Uh, CPAC machines, so those breathing devices that help people with sleep apnea and these kinds of things. So, Wow, those are great, great examples. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking that many of those are usually so expensive. So what about affordability uh, for um, like a senior, regular senior in our community or our is the government providing those? Is are there any type of supports to get um, assistive technology for seniors, or they it needs to come out of their pocket? Yeah, so this is a really good question, and one of the interesting things about our project is that we've not only asked older adults, we've not only asked them and their caregivers, but we've also posed this question to uh, people in charge of making policy, uh, people working high levels in the health authority practitioners on the ground uh, on a client-to-client -client basis and helping uh, diagnose, so both specialists as well as uh, OTs and also, uh, you know, geriatric nurses, and asking them um, this question as well. Um, and so the accessibility question we've seen across the data uh, is that there's not enough uh, in the hospitals. So m most hospitals have programs that will actually rent out assisted devices, um, and then I can't remember the exact qualification, but I think for most people, like they they can rent them out to you, but only for a certain amount of time. You have to give them back. Um, but then, if you need them for longer than a certain period of time, you have to buy them. And and depending on the price, uh, 
affording these assistive technologies, especially for seniors, and especially for seniors living on their own, is very, very difficult and, and really widespread. Um, most people can't afford to buy, let's say, a hearing aid, which can range anywhere from 5000 to 15000 uh, You know, Most people do not have that money um, to afford that assistive device. So accessibility financially is a, is a big problem. Um, and I know we found out also that there is an office from Red Cross uh, that also helps with this kind of borrow. That's correct. Yeah, and I, I, I'm fairly certain. So they have a, a good relationship with the hospital system uh, and also palliative care facilities as well, mm. which also house a lot of assistive devices. Um, but you know, our our you know the research has shown are quite heavily stigmatized, so people actually are a little nervous about going to access palliative care facilities when they need technologies because of the stigmas associated with that. Actually, we're, our team's working on a paper right now that's looking at mm-hmm. the role of what's called stereotype threat in, uh, in, in, in basically making older adults uh, apprehensive about using various technologies, not just assistive, but technology in general, um, because of the threat of occupy, occupying negative stereotypes that, uh, you know, diminish their meaning, basically, of that group. So, um, yeah, there's uh, a lot of challenges. Um, and sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. No, there, all great. I, I was um, going actually, my next question was um, going to be around the paper you're working on, the, the manuscript about stereotype. And I'm glad you touched on the theme of stigma because also um, assistive technology can be a little bit intimidated for some seniors. Uh, and I have seen that as like, for example, with my mom and, and some of my cousins and, and aunties who are seniors. And when they start to use, for example, an iPad, they, they get some... Um, <laughs> there is a good comment from one of my aunties, and she said, like, this is from the devil. Mm. Like, this is, this is magic, but it's not good magic. Like, this is something... How come I, I can talk to you over the phone? Like, over, over a video call... And, and yeah, yesterday I was also talking to my mom and she was like, before to make a phone call, it was so costly. They charge per minute and you need to call to the operator. And then you have to do a big investment to call someone overseas, for example. But now it's so easy to do it through WhatsApp or Messenger. And she was like, this is just unbelievable. But for other people, uh, seniors, is like, oh no, this is this is something from the devil, like it's not right. Mm-hmm. And, and it, I was just curious, like, I don't know, it's interesting. But anyway, um, are there any comments you would like to share with us around the stereotype and the stigma and how these assistive technologies can be maybe overwhelm seniors instead of helping them? It can be also like a burden them or feel like bring some fears mm-hmm. and even the uh, self-esteem issues, um, frustration, uh, feeling stupid or not capable to keep it up with technology. Yeah, well, first of all, we'll have to maybe put this aside, but I'd love to go into the symbolism of, you know, the the devil the devil and the technology and then that... Uh, that That's a big topic, right? Well, like, yeah, because <laughs> of the... Also, I read in the... I can't remember where I read it, but there's a kind of a joke that, you know, Apple has a a bitten apple, right, as, oh. as part of their symbol, right, is the forbidden fruit uh, in a biblical sense. So it's kind of interesting, that connection. Uh, I would say that, like, 
the paper has really shown me that there is an unbelievable kind of complexity to the human, to, to the individual using a, a technology that needs to be taken into account, their history using technology of success and failure using technology, but also their previous identities and how those can impact how willing they are to shift those identities to then accept and use uh, and adopt new technology. Um, so just on an individual basis, there's also personality characteristics that we've seen that can affect how much somebody wants to use or not use a technology. So in the literature, uh, uh, personality characteristics of rigidity or resistance is something that's cited as being an indicator of somebody uh, being more or less susceptible uh, to stereotyping uh, as a consequence of, uh, of certain personality traits. So the literature is, is extremely vast and complex when it comes to looking at stereotyping within aging context. Uh, and this paper explores that literature leading into uh, technology and age-related stereotyping uh, because I think it's incredibly relevant. Are, are there any examples you can share with us? Like what type of stereotypes? What do you mean by that? Like I, I have any, uh, like some ideas, but just for people who is listening, like what do you mean by stereotype? And if you can give some examples. Yeah, so what we mean by stereotype are basically um, assumptions made about a group of people um, that, you know, m maybe some of the people within that group, um, you know, have, have um, you know, have exhibited that behavior, but not all the people in the group can be painted by that, that example um, in a particular context. Uh, so... Stereotypes are often understood as, as being negative, but stereotypes can also be positive. So it's important to show the distinction. Um, a negative stereotype is something along the lines of, there's a classic uh, example in the stereotype literature where, uh, you know, women have been said to be not as good at math as men, right? So we can see kind of right off the bat that that claim uh, is a generalization about a group of people generalizing about another group of people that doesn't take into account individual differences within those group of people. So, you know, I can think of many women I know who are better at math than I am. And so if you apply the stereotype uh, in a general broad sense, what you're not doing is taking into account the individual uh, aspects uh, of people within those groups. Uh, so, and, and often stereotypes can be associated with other prejudices within culture that, uh, that also... Um, And, and what about the stereotypes, uh, positive stereotypes you mentioned? Yeah, so positive stereotyping, this is really interesting, and I talk about this in the paper because it can have a negative and positive effect. So there's something called positive stereotype priming or positive stereotyping where you actually tell a group of people before they do something that the group, of, the group that they identify with. So say, for example, you want older adults to perform better uh, using a technology, you'd say, well, actually... We've seen in the group before you guys of, of seniors, they did amazing with this, right? Or they did it, you know, the, so you, you basically prime the group with a positive generalization about the previous group of seniors who did, you know, air quotes, amazing. And you tell that to the next group of seniors before they do or use the technology. And this can actually improve their performance on using the technology. Whoa, that sounds like psychology to me. <laughs> this is. This is like a principle of social psychology. Yeah. Stereotype threat's a very famous, uh, there's a very famous experiment uh, that was done, not with seniors, but just in a math class, where the teacher tells a group of uh, young men and young women that 
before they did the math exam that men typically do better on math exams than women. And then when they controlled for all the variables in this in this uh, in this experiment, they found that men consistently performed better on average on these uh, uh, you know in the in this experiment than the women, right? So um, yeah, so stereotype threat. Uh, is a real phenomenon that uh, that occurs in the technology and aging related environment that comes in so many like complex and hidden ways. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. It has been a great interview and everything we have been discussing today is just so important for healthy aging and for everyone who is interested in geotechnology, uh, gerontology, and just in everything that is related to um, helping older adults to age in place and um, being more independent and having a better quality of life. Definitely, it has been great to be with you during this past year working in this project, the project um, Knowledge, Implementation for Scale-Up, Spread, and Sustainability of Assistive Technologies. Um, we call it the KISAT project, and it's an implementation science team grant here at the University of Victoria. So I want to say thank you again, and just to kind of confirm everything you have been saying around the importance of understanding the technology-related stereotypes. Um, as you have mentioned in the manuscript you're working on, uh, there is a lack of qualitative research on the life experience of older adults. So it is important to continue with this work. And I know uh, there are four important themes or four key uh, themes that you found out in this uh, qualitative paper that you just wrote. Um, number one, the threat of age and technology-related stereotypes. Number two, the symbolic threat of assistive technologies. Number three, the threat of incompetency stereotypes. And number four, the impact of learning environments on a stereotype threat. Um, you and the team have identified triggers of stereotype threat to, for older adults in technology-related environments and offer strategies to increase awareness to the impact of a stereotype threat on technology adoption. So it is a great paper to come in to come up. Uh, if people wants to be in touch uh, with Thomas, he's gonna offer some of um, his um, the way we can contact him. Uh, before we wrap up this interview, I want to say also that um, as an acknowledgement, we as a team, as a research team here at the University of Victoria, we wish to express our gratitude to the late Dr. Karen Kobayashi whose vision and leadership for this research and its funding were foundational, but for also being present in the life of so many students and faculty members across campus, she has been really um, created and lived a legacy. Uh, Karen was a professor in the Department of Sociology and a research fellow with the Institute of Aging and Lifelong Health at the University of Victoria. As a social gerontologist and researcher, she often used life course and intersectionality approaches to draw attention to cultural and individual characteristics, uh, socioeconomics and sociological factors and experiences affecting health and aging. Um, really, uh, Karen has been such an important person in the lives of so many, also in the community, Japanese community here in Victoria and nationally. Um, as she has been a powerful voice 
for redress regarding injustices faced by older adults, diverse immigrant and indigenous populations, and of course the Japanese Canadians during and after the internment. Um, in the papers and the research work that she has been working on and um, the time and effort she has contributed to many of these communities to seek for more equity, diversity and inclusion. So throughout her career, Karen has uh, been a champion and she has supported critical and accountability in scholar work in the knowledge mobilization and also bringing this theory to practice, such an important piece in terms of being also collaborative with community to have active engagement, respect, and giving giving back to the research uh, communities, participants, and other investigators and working with students and with uh, organizations. So really, this is um, a, a way to acknowledge a professor, a mentor, and a very foundational person for this particular project and this research. So we wish to ex express our gratitude and to acknowledge her memory and celebrate her legacy as well. Um, we wish to thank to the Michael Smith Foundation for providing the funding for this research project. And we want to thank all the community members, especially people living in Port Hardy, our friends Rosalind Lean and Donna Gold and John Tidbury for their tremendous support to this project and make the, make, make the work a more community-oriented and community-based. And yeah, it's just um, amazing the work they have been doing Um, the leadership they have been showing, the care for their peers in their community, and it's just uh, remarkable everything they are doing and the way they have been um, willing to work with us as um, in a project, in a, in a research project, in a collaborative way. So um, thank you to Simon, Carol, uh, Denise Cloutier, Dr. Gore Miller, and everyone who has been involved in the project of um, KISAT. Also, thank you to Canasis, uh, Robin, and everyone at the Canasis team for being so supportive of every stage in this important project. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, so we need to wrap up this interview, Thomas, but it has been great. And I'm wondering if you would like to share um, anything that we haven't said and you would like uh, people to hear that from you. Uh, no, I just want to say thanks for, for having me on. Like, as always, we've been working together for a while, so I've enjoyed uh, the discussions both here and previous, and uh, to just wish everybody a, a good summer and to, you know, appreciate what they have uh, as much as possible and, and enjoy their family, and, and yeah. And it. is there a way to contact you if people is interested in your work? Like, uh, how can they find you? Yeah, I think like I don't use social media. Uh, there's a whole another conversation in there <laughs> embedded in psychology and, and philosophy. But uh, yeah, by email is probably the best. Uh, you can reach me at tmalette2 uh, at gmail.com. Uh, that's M-A-L-L-E-T-T-E -T -T -E number two. Uh, and yeah, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. And hopefully, uh, perhaps we can have you another time also here in the podcast for Beyond the Jargon at CFUB. Thank you. Music in this episode by Keep Calm with the title One Fine Day. Thank you to our guest, Thomas Mellet. You can find out more about the Kisat project and his work in the show notes. Likewise, you can find more information about the UVic Institute on Aging and Lifelong Health. In addition, 
I am including in the show notes a link to the Karen Midori Kobayashi Memorial Scholarship. This scholarship aims to honor and contribute to keeping her memory, wisdom, passion, and legacy alive through this scholarship. The scholarships will focus on one or more outstanding graduate students in the Faculty of Social Sciences, working on topics that seek to improve the life of diverse and vulnerable older adults. If you are a UVic employee and you would like to make a donation through payroll deduction, there is a link where you can go. Check it out. This podcast was produced by CFUV with financial support from the University of Victoria's Graduate Student Society and their members. CFUV is a non-profit radio station broadcasting from the University of Victoria campus on the traditional, unceded, and surrendered territories of the Saanich and Lekwungen's peoples. Visit cfubpodcast.com or search for CFUV wherever you get your podcast for more homegrown cutting-edge content.